today. And this isn't exactly the way that I planned it, but one of my favorite preachers is a guy who died a few years ago. His name was R.C. Sproul. His name still is R.C. Sproul, but I'm not sure exactly how to use that, how, what the linking verb ought to be in that particular case. Um, but R.C. Sproul then has two passages that he has preached from that I particularly am most fond of. One of them is the passage that we're working on today. And ever so providentially slash coincidentally, the other one is the one that I'll be preaching on tonight. So there's a certain sense when I come to these texts that I feel a little bit like, <sighs> I believe that the power uh, of the preached word comes from the word, right? So we want to start there. I think that's a, a good theological basis. But we also know that the Lord doesn't give gifts equally to the same people. And so part of me just wants to step down and say, we're just going to watch R.C. Sproul and let's just listen to him preach that. And I want to feel the same weight of doing the same thing tonight with the kids. In fact, it was really tempting. I wanted to go this last week as I was preparing these two messages. And I wanted to just go listen to R.C. Sproul do them. He's got that old, or had that old gravelly voice. Uh, it, it's in, when I'd listen to the, him teach in his younger days when he had more of a golden voice. I'm kind of like, well, that's not R.C. Sproul. Why, who's impersonating R.C.? What's going on? It was only when he got a little weaker and a little more frail and his voice a little bit more guttural that I really thought, ah, oh, that's, that's the way to preach this passage. So I only did that to one of them. I didn't do that to the Isaiah 6 text that we'll be in to this evening. Uh, so if at any point you hear me just kind of, you know, it's just that that's coming back and I, I can't really help it. Here's what I do find more encouraging than my ability to impersonate R.C. Sproul, though. I like the fact that Paul had the exact same dilemma. That Peter felt the exact same dilemma. Now, before we get into their dilemmas, let's just remember this. We have been kind of uh, tracking the geography of these guys for a little bit. And I want to let you know an error in archaeology. All right? So... Uh, if you remember, we started when, uh, when Brad was with us, he was taking us through Jesus' ministry up in Phoenicia, Syrophoenicia and Tyden, or, uh, Tyre and Sidon uh, when he was up there. And he was um, uh, just kind of proving that God really cares about the, the Gentiles as much as he cares about the Greeks. If you remember, as he was leaving there, he went north first, then to go south, then to go on the other side of the Sea of Galilee to hit up another group of Gentiles, so that he could repeat some miracles with them, just like he had done with the Jews. And then last week, we were uh, moving a little bit north, all the way up to Caesarea Philippi. Here's the interesting thing this week. Where is the mountain that Jesus was transfigured on? Most people would say it was down there, Mount Tabor. Uh, Do we not have this slide? We do have that slide. Okay, very good. I was just like... I'm talking about stuff that I thought we were looking at, and it turns out we aren't. Anyway, you see that little yellow circle there down there, Mount Tabor? There is a chapel, there is a cathedral, there is everything kind of in the way. And as people are asking, why did they ever pick Mount Tabor? It's probably like the same reason that people chose which mountain was Mount Sinai. I'm not sure if I've ever told you this story, but when I was in Egypt and we were looking at Mount Sinai, I had my picture taken in front of four mountains 
before we actually got to Mount Sinai because I would be on the road and it would say, Mount Sinai, this way. And you'd turn and there's a big mountain. I'm like, ooh, that's a cool shot. Take my picture. And they took my picture in front of Mount Sinai. And then you'd come, there was another turn in the road and it would say, Mount Sinai, this way. I'm like, oh, okay, well, film in the camera. You're not going to get that back. But, you know, so I just kept doing that. And honestly, that's a lot of the way that tourism sometimes in, in this region of the world kind of works. People don't know. There's not a real marker. And Mount Tabor was probably chosen because when people were making their pilgrimage north, they needed to pick a spot. The reason that we know it's probably not Mount Tabor is because at the time of uh, what was going on, there was actually a really big Roman like uh, military colony there. And so it probably wouldn't necessarily function the way that we see Mount, the Mount of Transfiguration functioning. More than likely, it's somewhere up there. So if you want one of those little mountains that some artist drew on the map, pick your mountain. There we go. Not really sure exactly where this is, but more than likely, Jesus is just continuing his quest north. And that's where the events of Mark chapter 9 take place. So geography out of the way. Let's get back to Paul and get back to Peter. Listen to, listen to what Paul said about this whole preaching thing. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Good commitment on Paul's part. I didn't want you to be convinced because I was a great and persuasive preacher. I wanted you to be convinced because you felt the power of God. Now, Peter says something really, really similar. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. See, Peter says, I want you guys to experience real, or Paul says, I want you to experience real power. And then Peter says something very similar. He's like, trust me, you're never going to be impressed with my voice because I heard a voice that spoke with power. I was around the impression and display of glory. And there's just, after a moment like that, there is no need for me to try to impress you because I never could. I can never speak like this myself. But that said, if you try to track a guy like Peter and his time with Jesus over most of, you know, his earthly ministry, and you were to get him in the very beginning, right after, say, the miraculous catch of fish, right? Peter's struggling. Jesus comes up to him and says, you know, nuts on the other side. Hey, I'm, who's the expert here? Well, it, me, I made the fish. So yeah, go. And he then catches all the fish. And you were to say, Peter, who is Jesus? What's he like? Draw me a picture of him. And he went to his crayon box. Maybe he'd choose brown and silver and blue, things that would represent what he knew about Jesus up till that moment, right? If you waited a little while longer and you went to a <coughs> time of him preaching or something along those lines, yep, Zoe, thanks, got a, got a mission. For now, there we go, just in case there's a crisis. 
If you, were to, if you were to walk through something like that with Peter after Jesus has started teaching, or if you met him at a moment of a miracle, he might use like black because he saw Jesus take a guy whose eyes were dark and then make them light and he would add some white to it or something along those lines. You know, it's, it's hard to know exactly the way that he would change it. And in fact, if I were to ask you, I want you to draw a picture of God. Where would you go in your crayon box? What would you, let's do something a little safer now that we don't have a lid. Thank you so much. This happens every single week, and you would think that sometime I would actually come prepared to the pulpit, which would make a lot more sense. I do prepare, just so you're aware, but (laughs) hopefully you know what I'm talking about. Back to your crayon box, where would you go? Where in your box of crayons would you turn if you were going to try and draw a picture of God. I can promise you this, after the events that we just heard, there is absolutely no way that the disciples would know where to go in their crayon box. Every time anybody experiences Jesus, like the disciples experienced Jesus here on the mountain, or youth camp, teaser, Isaiah experiences God in the temple in his vision Every time somebody comes away with that, they just say like, it was like this, but not this. It was like lightning, but not lightning. It was like fire, but not fire. It was like something that was burning, but not burning. And Mark's version, Peter's version of this is, hey, did you ever get your clothes like super white, like the best white you've ever had them? this was better. Where do you go in the crayon box to, to do that? It, it, it's hard to say, isn't it? But what Paul was convinced is that when the word is preached, what we need to see is not something that can be shared through the power of a preached word. What Peter was convinced of is not that he was going to impress somebody by being really eloquent or really wise, or come up with something that he said was cleverly devised. He just said, I I, I just feel like you need to know that I was there when God bowled us away. The amazing thing is that though all of us would long to have been a part of this, apparently, in the way that God works, the testimony of what was seen is as powerful as seeing it yourself. Because otherwise, it's a little hard to describe why Jesus wouldn't have taken everyone with him. Why not all the crowd? Why not all the disciples? Why just the select few? Well, apparently, in his way of building out the kingdom, the record of what's true ought to be as powerful as the truth itself. So in other words, what that means for us 2,000 years later after this event is that we can experience the glory of God, the glory of Christ as powerfully in some ways when we, by faith, join ourselves to what's being preached. It's not because it's going to come cleverly devised. It's not because it's going to come all that eloquent. It's simply this. We get to see Jesus once again this morning, and we believe that by the power of the Spirit, something powerful can have to happen when that actually takes place. So the question is, what is it that we need to see Well, let's go back into Mark, where we ended at the end of chapter 8, verse 31, was this. 
Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In other words, when Jesus is trying to say, I get it, what I'm calling you to would make you really embarrassed these days. The good thing is, those days are always with us. If they were there 2,000 years ago with Jesus on the earth, and he says, Seriously, for you to really buy into what I'm saying, this adulterous and sinful generation is going to mock you and you're going to feel kind of ashamed, but there's blessing in it because I'm coming back. But if you're ashamed of me, it is, uh, yeah, I'll share that sense with you. But what he references is that he's coming back with glory. And then he turns and he, he, he brings this concept that's just present all throughout Scripture. That God's glory isn't just something we sort of know academically, but that God's glory is something we can actually experience and we can actually see. In other words, it's not enough to simply study the fact that God is glorious. There's always a desire, the more we get to know God, for God's people to say, but I want to I see it. That passage that Judy read from Exodus 19, everybody saw it. Everybody saw the stuff that looked like sort of a volcano or a lightning storm or something going on with something like a cloud, the indescribable kind of language, the kind of language that would have reminded Moses of the first time that he saw the burning bush, right? All of those are these burdens of glory that people feel inside that are scary and terrifying but also incredibly intriguing and incredibly drawing. Listen listen to Moses. He says in chapter 33 of Exodus, How shall it be that I know that I've found favor in your sight, I and your people? It's not in you giving us the law. It's not in you sending an angel. It's this. It's not, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth? So the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you've spoken, I will do. You found favor in my sight, and, and I know you by name. So Moses said, okay, you're going with us? Please show your glory to me. Moses says, the one thing we need is that you go with us. And God's like, fine, I'll go with you. And then Moses says, oh, <laughs> well, subset of that one thing we need is that I'd really like to see you. Could I just really see you? Same burden there. Isaiah is talking not just about an individual, select like Moses, but everyone. He says this, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain made low. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. In other words, Isaiah is saying, it's not just like individual guys like Moses who really wanted to be connected to God and see his glory. This is a burden that exists in the heart of every single individual. So with that, return back to Mark chapter 9, and we hear this. After Jesus says, when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels, he then says, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, a lot of people have trouble trying to get consistent interpretations of what that means. Not that they're not consistent themselves, but get a group of theologians together, 
man, a bunch of different guys are wondering. Is it going to refer to what we just talked about here next, to the transfiguration? Maybe, and in fact, every gospel author seems to link this phrase to the transfiguration. In other words, they say this happens and then the transfiguration happens. So whatever it means, they are linked in the gospels. It's just an odd way for Jesus to say it. There are some in this room who will not taste death until we get to the end of this sermon. What have I just implied? Some of you are going down in the next half hour. 40 minutes. We'll just be generous with the preacher here, you know? That's a weird way of saying you guys are going to listen to the rest of this sermon, right? Because it implies by the use of a negative, something else, not so positive, that some of you aren't going to make it. That's kind of what Jesus seems to be saying, but it's an odd way of saying it because the transfiguration happens like immediately. It happens right now. So it could be referring to the cross. It could be referring to the resurrection. It could be referring to the ascension. Some would point out and say it'll refer all the way to the return of Christ. Some might date it a little bit closer to this and say, well, there was this stuff that happened with the fall of Jerusalem. It's hard for anybody to really get consistency as a group about what this really refers to. We just do know this. Jesus says it right before every gospel author says, and then Jesus was transfigured. So whatever it ultimately points to, it at least sets the stage for what's about to happen because there's this burden inside of everyone to see who Jesus really is, to know that we don't just know, but we know something that we've experienced, we've seen, we've been aware of. And that's a burden for every single one of us. So the question as we're reading here is, what do we need to see about Jesus? We need to see that he's bright. We get that. We need to see that he's God. We get that. But there's a few other things in this. In fact, today we've got four. I'll try to move through them kind of quickly so the sermon isn't 33% longer than normal. But here's the first thing we need to see. Jesus fulfills the story of God's presence, by which I basically mean this. He's on a mountain. And lots of stuff happens on mountains in the Bible. See it in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, those who've been reading their Bibles before this moment, or those who are reading this and have read other parts of the Bible, or even the Jews themselves that are going up with Jesus, the disciples going up with them, are aware, whoa, we are climbing a really big mountain here. Big stuff happens on big mountains in the Bible. Genesis chapter 28, Jacob Those of us who are a little older might think of the story as Jacob's ladder, right? And we think of a ladder, a barnyard farm ladder, something that you just open up and angels are climbing up and down because we hear this. And he dreamed, Jacob dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and on top of it, And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord. Now, that picture there is kind of hard if we think in terms of modern day Home Depot kind of ladders. That's not more than likely what was there. Staircase might be a better sort of translation that fits with what we're talking about. But probably the best way is to think all the way back to the first time we saw a ladder like this, and it was the Tower of Babel. Remember, people learned how to make bricks. 
Now you didn't just have to build stuff out of stones that you moved. You could bake bricks and build them up that way. And so they could, man, it just seemed like they could build and build and build and build. What did they do? They built a ziggurat, a ladder, a staircase. But it was a big temple that ascended to heaven. The ladder that Jacob is dreaming about is something very much like this. If you step back from a distance, it's kind of like the Death Star, right? That's no planet. That's no moon. If you were to step back from this ladder, you might look and go, that's, that's no ladder. That's a, that's a mountain. And what's happening on the mountain? God's at the top, and angels are making their way up and down. Jacob is realizing that God has brought him in to his communication up and down with the people from his realm to our realm. Mountains kind of represented that ascent and that potential for descent from God. Exodus chapter 3, we already talked about this, right? Moses is just meeting God, and it says Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And even if you just sort of went beyond all the Old Testament stories and altars and everything that even sort of the worship of false gods often took place on places called high places. Jesus himself has already done some mountain work, hasn't he? Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, here's the law. Why? Because he's repeating what happened on Mount Sinai. God works on mountains. And what Jesus is doing is not just borrowing sort of a way that God has been at work. He's, as to use his language many times, he's fulfilling it. It's the process of Jesus being lifted up that helps us realize that something significant happens when Jesus has arrived on the earth. Something significant happens when Jesus sits down to teach. And something significant happens here in Mark 9. Why? Because it happened on a mountain. The temple, a mountain. In some ways, the Garden of Eden all the way back, a mountain. This sense that what's there and what's here could meet in a moment is what Mark is kind of setting us up for. So Jesus is sort of whetting the, the, the appetite for in his disciples. And so Jesus took them. They went up in a mountain by themselves. And the second thing then that we see is that Jesus not just sort of fulfills this whole story. It's that he embodies God's glory. Verse 2, he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And again, this is just, this is something that every other author then has a, a backdrop for. And everybody who's interpreting this afterwards, like we saw with Peter, is looking backward and saying, I, I don't have the language for this. Skip a slide for a sec, Jace. We're going to go straight to Daniel 7. We read this. As I looked, thrones were placed. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. 
His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued before him and came out from before him. And if you've been around in the church for a while, you know that this point I'm making is exactly the point we made when we were in Daniel. But it's also the point that we made when we were in Revelation. It's also the point that we've made sort of every time somebody encounters the glory of God, they can say it was like this, but not this. It was as this, but not that. It was fiery flames and burning fire. And I just want to ask, okay, so Daniel, what's the difference again between fiery flames and burning fire? And why is the fire burning? Because isn't fire always burning? It's almost this sense that these guys who are trying to describe it are stumbling over their own words, coming up with everything they've got. They're going to the crayon box and saying, I got nothing. Yellow-ish, white-ish, gold-ish, but nothing. I don't know what to tell you. And so as I'm seeing this, I'm saying he was white, he was fiery. It was a stream of burning, fiery flames. Exodus 24. The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This is exactly what Mark is pointing us to, right? Jesus gets up on top of the mountain And just like the burning bush, just like the top of this, just like the wheels, just like the throne, just like the Ancient of Days hair, all of a sudden he becomes white in an indescribable way. And every crayon you were using to describe what Jesus is like, if you had to make a picture, just absolutely has to get thrown out. And Peter has to be thinking, you're an impressive teacher. You were a very kind healer, and you were a really impressive miracle worker. I had no category for what I am seeing right now. I don't know how to describe anything except for this. What the author of Hebrews says is, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. You hear that? Do you hear the absence of the word like or as? The absence of similes? This was like this. This was like that. This was like this. And the author of Hebrews says Jesus is that. He is the exact radiance, the exact imprint, the glory of God, Him. Equal sign, no little swervy equals sign. No more need for anything else because we've seen Jesus and we see glory. Revelation chapter 1, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. Sounds bright. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with, uh uh-oh, here John goes again, the golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. The eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. What's John doing? John's not just saying, I remember from reading this from Daniel. John is saying, I remember when I saw this on the mountain. I'm seeing my Lord again. 
I'm seeing my God again. And most of the time we were drawing blue and green and brown. That was the way we were drawing him. But that one time, oh, that one time, I see him again the way I saw him then. He's not just going up on a mountain to complete a story. He is the radiance and the imprint of glory. He's embodying the very imagery of the glory of God. And John, without words, Peter, without words, Peter in particular, without words, takes center stage in verse 4. And there appeared with them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Ryan's point, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let's go camping. Let us make three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And I remember the first time I heard this passage preached. And I was a little guy. And I came up to the pastor afterwards and I said, how did he know? How did Peter know that was Moses? He had never met Moses. There were no pictures of Moses. And unless Moses was saying, Hi, my name is Moses. And Elijah had a similar name tag. Hi, my name is Elijah. I was just massively curious. How did he know? Well, I mean, maybe Moses walked up and said, Hi, my name is Moses. (laughs) Maybe he just had that, you know, Charlton Heston look, right? Or I'm not sure exactly what this was. But Peter knows. He knows Not that just these are two guys, but these are two figureheads. The Mount Carmel prophet, Elijah, where the congregated forces of idolatry were defeated by God, that's a pretty important guy. The Mount Sinai, Moses, where the revelation from God to correct the errant ways of the slaves was communicated to God's people, Elijah and Moses are pretty good guys, I'd imagine, but they're more than just good guys. They represent the entirety of God's message to his people. Here's how to live, and here's what it's like when you stray. And here's the way to come back. Here's the way to be forgiven. This is what God communicates to his people, and he did it in the past on mountains, and now here, the glory of God in the form of a man. And Peter just blurts stuff out. In case we're tempted to think that verse 5 is actually something worthy and noble and well-informed, Mark just tells us, Peter reminds us, he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Again, this is just one of those great moments. I would love to have been there with Peter and Mark. Mark's writing this down, jotting it out. Peter's giving him the accounts of what's going on. And Peter is telling the story. And Mark, so then I said, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. 
Let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Because this is the best moment right now. We've got you and we've got them. We shouldn't lose this. We should make this a weekend. Come on, let's have a good old time because I got a lot I want to ask Moses. I got a lot I'd like to ask Elijah. And we've got you and we've got them. It's like the holy trinity of peoples here now. This is great. And Mark's going to be thinking, are you stupid You're serious. You could not tell me what was going on right now? That Jesus was not being helped by the addition of those. He was fulfilling the role of those. He was the new Moses. He was the one coming. He had already explained all of this to you on on the, the mountain of the Sermon of the Mount, right? Like, you got this before? And Peter's like, um, you'd think. And Elijah, really? You needed a better miracle worker than Jesus? So you were thinking somebody like Elijah? You really needed Moses? You really needed Elijah? Did you miss the point? And Peter's like, fine, write this. He did not know what to say, for he was terrified. You tell me how you'd be doing if your buddy all of a sudden looks like an angel, huh? You gonna know what to say? Mark's like, fine, I'll write it down. But it's not over. Peter is confused. He's terrified in his confusion, confused in his terror. And so he is then overshadowed by a cloud. Verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. You don't need Moses. You don't need Elijah. I sent my son. If you want to think about this a little bit more, just go read the book of Hebrews. In days gone by, God did this with angels and prophets and Moses and Jesus. Sometimes it's fun after watching a movie, to go back and watch the trailers. But not because they're a replacement. It's because you finally get the trailer, right? There are people who are fans of concerts who love finding the old advertisements for them. Not because the advertisement is better, but it's a great reminder. And that's all Moses and Elijah were. They were just Good reminders, but you really don't need them now that the concert's come. You really don't need them now that you've actually seen the movie. That's exactly the way it is. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. It's almost like Mark is looking at Peter. Only. Yeah, I know. Look, I'm telling you the story, man. If you got Jesus, you're good. The story keeps going. It says, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the second time he's talked to the Son of Man risen from the dead, right? Remember last week? You're the Christ? I'm the Christ. Which means suffering, rejection, death. Well, that, that doesn't sound very good, Jesus. I rebuke you. Yeah, I rebuke you. Okay. 
But at the end of that, Jesus had already said, and after three days, rise again. And he's saying the same thing now. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, so let's talk about Elijah again. And if you're Mark, you've got to be thinking, are you, are you serious? You just, you were just on your own Mount Sinai, right? The cloud, everything enveloped you, radiance of the glory of God embodied in this one. And you heard the voice in the cloud say, listen to him. And on the way down, you said, so, Elijah, huh? And he said to them, well, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did to him whatever they pleased that is written to him. Verses 9 through 13 are so perplexing to me. And in some ways, just like with other stuff that we've already talked about in Mark, I kind of wish Mark just told the story in a different way patting people on the back a little bit more, trimming stuff out that didn't put the disciples in the best light. Here they are, God's glory embodied in a man. The voice from heaven says, this is my son. I'm pleased with him. He is my beloved. And so I want you to listen to him. And poof, you don't need Moses. And poof, you don't need Elijah. Just like they appeared, now they disappeared. You're left with him, him only. Let's listen to him. And the disciples immediately go, um... That's a little too complicated. Let's deal with stuff that I can deal with. Why do we do that as Christians? Why do we like minimizing mystery down to morality? Why do we like taking real power and moving it into sort of governance and politics? Why do we like taking a message of life and reducing it down to something that at its heart feels legalistic. Guys, why do we do that? It's because this God terrifies us. He does. Half the time when I don't have my devotions in the morning, it's because I'm aware deep inside there's something about God that just sees through me, and that is kind of terrifying. Maybe I'll just read the news instead. We like, in some ways, dealing with the common because the holy just is transcendent. And I think, if we're honest, we have to join ourselves with those disciples in verses 9 through 13 on their descent away from the holy. And we've got to recognize, man, we've got to back that up and we've got to get back to the top and just say, I'm here, I am scared, but I'm listening. It's not just that he's telling the story. It's not just that he's embodying glory. It's that Jesus is conveying authority. When he speaks, God speaks. He is conveying the authority of the voice of God to those who would choose to listen. And guys, we've got Jesus' voice accessible all the time. And I just got to say, this isn't it. This is a moment of it to the extent that this from the word comes across to you. That 
that's good. But we literally choose the mud puddles of this world over the oceans of glory available in God's word for us if we would just stop being terrified and recognize we're invited. That this same one who is glorious is also, he's also beloved. And that's, that's the fourth point we got to see. It's not just all of this with authority and glory and the story. It's finally that Jesus also transfers the blessing of God's approval. Listen to verse 7 once again. The cloud overshadowed them. A voice came out of the cloud and he said this. This is my authoritative son. Yes. Glorious son. Yes. Redemptive history fulfilling son. Odd adjective. Yes. He's my beloved son. Same phrase from the baptism repeated here now. And what's amazing for Christians isn't that we just have to sit for the rest of our days and admire the way that God loves his son. As though that's the drama and we're just the audience Wow, God is love. How do you know? Well, I know because the Father loves his Son. And what it means to be a Christian is that I get to observe it, study it. I get to be an audience around it. And I can tell you, like right here, this is, he's the beloved one. Jesus only is the beloved one. But John tells us in the very beginning of his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory but glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John later on, when he's describing his relationship with Jesus, every time he talks about himself, it says at the very end, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And this is the disciples bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. You see what John's done just on the bookends of his gospel? One of those who was there to observe this moment, who heard God the Father call Jesus the Beloved One, he said somehow through the mystery of what Jesus did, he didn't just come to teach. He didn't just come to heal. He didn't just come to impress. He came to share. He came to transfer the authority of the one who was loved to those to whom he loved. And shared his love. And shared truth. But through grace, the mystery of the love of God is now just not something we watch between father and son. It's now something we experience because Jesus has come to share his beloved status with us. Who in this story is the child of God? It's Jesus, right? John says, and, and me. What do I want you to know about me? He loves me. Who is the loved, who is the beloved child 
of the king. Church, it's you. He didn't just come to impress. He didn't just come to teach. He came to transfer the love of God from himself to us. I told you I love R.C. Sproul. It's because he's learned how to address his church. He learned how to address his church. I don't know what it would be like if I called you beloved all the time. Especially if it was one-on-one. That might seem a little odd. But when R.C. spoke in his gravelly voice to the church that he founded at the end of his life, he would say, Beloved! That's not it. You just got to go listen. (laughs) I'm horrible. Kirsten can tell you. I tried to do an Italian accent. I wound up with... Kirsten, what is it you said that I did? I sounded like Dracula. I would start from the guy who was the Italian cook in uh, Lady and the Tramp, and I tried to get my headspace there, and at the end I was Gru or Dracula or whatever. I can't do voices, that's my point. So I can't read this like R.C. Sproul, but I think he listened to John well when John addressed his church. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Beloved, we are God's children now. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. You know what he does by so graciously and persistently reminding us that we're not going to be treated as our sins deserve, but we get treated as the beloved son deserves? Here's one of the other things that happens to us. And it's back in that Revelation passage that I read for you. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden, what are we called? We're lampstands. We're those that contain a light that shines as well. But I'm convinced that our shining in this world doesn't start with morality. I'm convinced that our shining in this world doesn't start with our mere imitation. I'm convinced that our shining in this world doesn't happen because we adopt some political stance. I am fundamentally convinced that the way we shine in this world is that we remember that we are loved, undeservingly, graciously, and preciously loved the way that Jesus deserved to be loved. So beloved, this is going to be the benediction, but I'll read it now too. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord, who's the Spirit. I love that reminder at the end. Yes, you know you don't deserve to be loved. You know you haven't acted lovably. But how are we convinced that God is actually doing this miraculous work of taking the one who could shine like the glory of God and making us, simply by looking at him, become like him? Paul says, don't trust me. Just like I'm saying, don't trust me. 
Paul said, this comes from the Lord, who's the Spirit. Let's pray, beloved. Father, we thank you that you sent your one and only, your only begotten, your beloved Son. We don't know what that cost. We know you must have felt it when you called Abraham to send his son up a mountain to a sacrifice. We know you must have felt it when your son was wrestling with you in the garden. We know you must have felt it when your son couldn't even address you as father, but had to cry out on the cross, my God, you've forsaken me. Why? We don't know what it was like for you to send your son, but we are so very grateful that you did. Not just that he'd come to teach or impress, but that he would come to embody your glory and carry your grace so that we could be loved the way that you love Jesus. This is too much for us, Lord. We can barely believe it to be true. And yet we pray that you would overwhelm us once again with how deeply you love us. Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and we're going to sing to the one who loves you.